Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. This week, we're bringing you a Bully Pulpit XL, interviewing author and First Things editor, Rusty Reno. He joins the conversation to talk about religion and society. Let's join Rusty, Amy, Todd, and Carl. Welcome to this week's Mortification of Spin. The usual crew are here. I'm Carl Truman with my friends uh, Amy Bird and Todd Pruitt. This week we're very privileged to have somebody else who's uh, a friend, and that is Rusty Reno. Uh, Rusty is perhaps best known today as the editor of First Things magazine, which is the preeminent organ for the discussion of religion in the public square in the United States. Prior to coming to First Things, Rusty taught for 20 years at Creighton University uh, in Nebraska. He's uh, written books on Genesis uh, and more recently on the state of play for religion and society in the United States. In fact, his new book, uh, Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society, is a must-read for anybody wanting to navigate the the confusing and choppy waters in which religious conservatives now find themselves in the United States. Of course, we're living at a time where a number of books have come out recently uh, on this topic. Uh, Mary Eberstadt's It's Dangerous to Believe, Religious Freedom and Its Enemies. John Inartzu's Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. And Yuval Levin's The Fractured Republic, Renewing America's Social Contract in the Age of Individualism, have all set forth visions for uh, what's going on in society and how conservatives, and particularly religious conservatives, might respond to the current climate. Uh, and so we've invited Rusty onto the program today to to find out what is distinctive about his particular contribution to this ongoing discussion. Rusty, it's a great pleasure to have you with us today. Great to be with you guys. So to cut to the chase straight away, what is unique about your particular book, given the, the burgeoning number of these that are now appearing on the market at this point? Well, it certainly is a sign of the times that we have books that are reassessing the role of religion in American public life. I mean, you mentioned Maristha, John Anazu, um, Yuval Levin. His is not so much about religion, but you've also got Russ Moore's Onward. Um, there's a book out by Bruce Ashford. Um, there's a bunch of, there's a, uh, the rising generation of evangelical leaders, I think, are actually aware that the model, the religious right model, is no longer workable. And that when First Things was founded, actually, in the 1990s, Newhouse, Richard Newhouse, the founder, really thought that, you know, there was a kind of an elite, secularized elite culture that didn't really speak for the nation. And that Christian leaders, if they spoke in a winsome way, were really speaking for the majority. It's hard to hold that belief any longer. And so, we are aware that we're increasingly a, min a minority in society, although a significant minority. And you get people like Mary Everstadt and John Anazu who are arguing for, they're arguing for 
uh, a genuine pluralism or a genuine liberalism that allows Christians to have a voice in public life. I think that my approach is different in the sense that I think that, you know, a neutral, a neutral state is really not possible. Uh, I take my jumping off point for my book, I'm kind of shamelessly exploiting T.S. Eliot's lectures, the idea of a Christian society. At the beginning of those lectures, Eliot says, I mean, observes that the choice facing Europe in the 1930s was a pagan society or a Christian society. And I have a similar view that a neutral society is not really possible. And that right now we have a choice between a pagan society, not the kind of brutal paganism of the past, but it comes under the sign of choice and freedom, our pagan society, but it revolves around the gods of health, wealth, and pleasure. So it's a kind of materialistic uh, paganism. And I don't think pluralism endures without a spiritual foundation. And so this is why we're seeing this kind of jihad mentality with respect to transgender bathrooms, which is, you know, pretty, that's a pretty, you know, out there, uh, you know, involves a tiny number of people, but progressives have gotten behind this with a great deal of enthusiasm, precisely because it's a kind of theology of the human person that they want to establish as the foundation for our society. And that theology well articulated in the Casey decision is that the essence of freedom is the ability to define for oneself the meaning of life. And I don't think that, that I don't, it's, it's becoming clearer and clearer that that theology is not very tolerant of pluralism. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the arguments I make in my book is that Christianity or biblical religion I think Judaism and Christianity, but especially Christianity is uh, clear about the distinction between the kingdom of God and the and the city of man, and that this distinction allows Christians to tolerate um, a lack of ultimate consensus in the public sphere, which provides the underlying foundations for genuine pluralism. Yeah, could you clarify that? Um, a Protestant picking up your book and seeing this title, resurrecting the idea of a Christian society, might have a lot of questions right away about, you know, what do you mean by that? Are you saying that you need, you think we need to restore American Christianity as we used to know it? Are you calling for some sort of theonomy here or, you know, to redeem politics? What do you mean by well, the use of that title? No, that's a great question. I mean, uh, it, it, it can't mean going back. Uh, that strikes me as, uh, you know, not a, a fruitful way of thinking. But instead, my goal is to outline what I think are the, the things that a healthy Christian community brings to bear on public life, especially in the American context. And, you know, we're called to be 11 and to be salt. And so it need not be the case that the majority of Americans are pious church-going Christians. In fact, it's never been the case that the majority of Americans are pious church-going Christians. Uh, the government does surveys on church attendance, and something like 25 to 35 percent of the population goes to church on any given Sunday, and that's been constant since the 1950s. And I talked to a sociologist of religion friend of mine, 
And he said it's probably been that way for 100 years. So it's not that Christians dominate society statistically. It's that they provide, that they leaven the moral imagination of the American people. And that's the big change. And I think that what we see in the current, in the current climate is that there's a kind of grasping towards some kind of postmodern moral vision that's increasingly the, the view that percolates through our society. Um, I mean, I think of the Wall Street Journal review section, so putatively conservative newspaper, but if you look at their weekend section, they've got columns on brain science, columns on you know, uh, sociology, um, columns on the role of genetics in influencing human behavior. So if you look at what that newspaper is focusing on, that upper middle class people in America now look to these kinds of brain science and um, you know, genetic analysis as a guide to better living. And which tells us that there's this kind of materialist view of the human person mm -hmm. that's widely accepted. And that this, this, run, this, this runs against what any kind of religious person would uh, think is the essence of the human person. Our problems become technical, not moral, is what you're saying. By and large. I yeah, mean, that's yeah. very much, that's very evident. Yeah. And so you're having trouble. So typically, if, if, if you had a workplace where you have dis, you know, some dysfunctional person who ha is angry and yells at uh, a boss that yells at his employees, you, an old, older way of thinking would say, well, this is a problem, a lack of virtue. You read these Wall Street Journal articles and they give advice in terms of how people's different genetic makeups lead them to have propensities in one direction or another. <laughs> and so virtue language tends to drop out and this kind of therapeutic language emerges as the dominant language for us to think about our own lives and our, also think about society as a whole. Mm -hmm. One of the things that uh, at least is close to the center of, of the book that you spend uh, a good amount of time on is the fact that uh, one of the marks of a Christian society is that it it um, it defends the weak, it helps support and 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 lift up the weak. And one of the things that's so helpful I found in the book is that you take kind of some some categories or some metaphors that Charles Murray wrote about th these metaphors of of the two different communities, uh, Belmont and Fishtown. Well, they're not and, metaphors; they are very well, <laughs> powerful realities, my friend. True. In fact, I, m the name of my neighborhood here in Virginia is Belmont, and so just to uh, uh, show all my cards. But but you you make a very powerful point that the new kind of progressive non-judgmentalism is wreaking havoc on the weak and on the poor. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit. One of the functions of a leadership class in society is to, to, to set a moral tone, if you will, for society as a whole. And one of the great crises of the post-60s era has been the refusal of elite Americans to accept responsibility for exactly that. And in fact, I look at the student protests of the 1960s as a kind of revolt of the elite against having to carry the moral burden of maintaining moral standards that are good for society as a whole, but not necessarily necessary for them. And so this non-judgmentalism introduces a high degree of flexibility into the moral life. 
Uh, and this flexibility kind of works for people who have a lot of social capital. Right. But the flexibility is very tough on people who don't bring a lot of social capital into the game of life. I mean, most people need um, guardrails. And, you know, a lot of people are born into life and they've come in difficult family circumstances, uh, poverty, lousy schools, a neighborhood that doesn't necessarily provide a very congenial environment to grow up in. So they're, they're kind of driving down life that's got a lot of oil on the pavement. Well, you get rid of the guardrails, and anytime somebody loses control of their life, boom, they go off the edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's um, incarceration, uh, uh, illegitimate children, uh, alcohol and drug abuse, adult onset diabetes, suicide. I mean, the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing it. It's actually getting worse, not better. Um, in our society. And one of the most striking things is the absolute denial of our progressive, secular progressive ruling class, that they have any connection, there's any connection whatsoever between their moral preachments or their amoral preachments and the collapse of working class America. I thought about this. I, I was reading actually uh, that particular chapter when I was in a coffee shop last week, and over the sound system was a song by Beyonce, which was literally a preachment of amoral sexual activity, a very kind of crass right. description of, of, of amoral sexual activity. And, my fr- and, and I was reading that chapter, and I thought, you know, she can afford financially she has the kinds of support to uh, uh to support her life living that way but but the masses of her audience if they take her words um and her preaching seriously can't afford uh their souls and their bodies and uh their homes cannot afford uh the lifestyle that she is advocating well todd it's interesting you should say that because even among the upper middle class things aren't all that great right um some studies suggest that students are having less sex in college than they did a generation ago. Hmm. So there's a toxic, I mean, the male-female dance has gotten very dysfunctional. Hmm. We see this with the kind of concerns about sexual assault on college campuses. But in general, it, there's a, a kind of anxious withdrawal from the sexual marketplace, because that's exactly what it's become. It's become a marketplace. And just like the marketplace has created a lot of anxiety for young people in terms of their futures, it also creates a lot of anxiety in terms of their emotional lives. Mm. So Robert Bella was the one who got me on to Mary Douglas's natural symbols. It was about a year before he died. Because I had I had presented to him this theory about how this non-judgmentalism uh, degrades the moral culture for the most vulnerable in our society. And he got me on to Mary Douglas, and Mary Douglas provided me with a kind of theoretical uh, framework to think through the sense in which this non-judgmentalism serves the interests of the ruling class at the expense of those that they rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a strong similar. element of class warfare in my book, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting that Terry Eagleton made that argument sort of 20 years ago in his critiques of postmodernism from a Marxist perspective. Indeed. When he was and, arguing, you know, if you if all narratives are relative, then you really play to the power structures of the status quo. That's right, because yeah. if 
if it's all a matter of power, then the powerful have you have no basis on which to critique the powerful, yeah. do you? Yeah. Um, and another person I don't mention him in the book, but is uh, who I'm very simpatico with is Ron Little, who writes for the Spectator in England. Oh, he's and, one of my heroes. Yes. Uh, I think it's called Screaming Whining Monkeys. Selfish whining monkeys. Selfish whining monkeys. <laughs> it's about three feet from me. I could read out, lean over, and grab it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the book. Those those two central chapters where I talk about raising up the poor and defending the weak, uh, little in a far more engaging and extremely funny way, uh, winds up covering a lot of the same territory. So I think I think maybe people are sort of waking up to the fact that our current cultural regime, for all of its talk about empowering the marginalized, uh, it it's not actually structured that way. I mean, if you think about it, there's a lot of there's a lot of dissatisfaction. We got these campus protests at elite universities in the United States. And I think it's born of a suspicion that all this rhetoric of inclusion is actually um, pretty empty. Hmm. Um, and I think one reason the gay ideology is so powerful in our time is because it's a rhetoric of inclusion that doesn't require the elite to change anything. Interesting. Because there are plenty of rich pa uh, families who have gay children. Yeah. And so I can imagine, I think Google hired a diversity officer who's a, gay, a white gay male. So if I'm a cynical <laughs> university president, I would be, thank God for the gay agenda. Now I can, um, I can sort of virtue signal without actually having to disrupt the ruling <laughs> right. class. Right. Yeah. You know, related to that is is your use of the word freedom. You kind of have a thread going throughout the yes. book of this this American pursuit of freedom, and you highlight just how um, how a Christian defines freedom is is much different than how these progressive secularists are selling freedom for us. And so you make this connection between freedom and authority that might sound opposed to what most people believe about freedom. I actually wanted to read something from your book because I, I think it's so good and worth noting. You say, freedom properly understood is based on a pledge of loyalty, not a declaration of independence. Our country's freedoms arise from eternal verities affirmed, not ties severed. Hmm. And so you talk about how um, a fundamental act is holding, not choosing, standing fast in the truth and not making it up. And I thought maybe uh, to ask you to expand on that a little bit of how a Christian would define freedom opposed to how most people talk about it. And well, most people culture. think freedom is the ability to do what you want. Yeah. And that's actually true. But they misunderstand the greatest threat to our ability to do what we want. <laughs> and the greatest threat to our ability to do what we want is that we are in the thrall of powers of the powers of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, worldly powers, whether there is economic discipline or peer pressure or what have you. And so the key to freedom is the ability to stand against the spirit of the age. And you can only stand against if you are anchored in something that is uh, powerful enough to, with, to, to, to provide you with an anchor mm -hmm. in the current of life. So really, I mean, Nietzsche said, Nietzsche said many things that were true. One of them, he said, is that freedom is the ability to say no. Hmm. Uh, because you can't say yes in, unless you can say no to worldly powers. 
And I look around me at these, especially young folks who I, they come through my office and they work here. I just feel they're under the thrall of so many anxieties about their future that, that I think, wow, the bondage is quite extraordinary. And so really freedom is based in loyalty to something greater than yourself uh, that is trustworthy. And ultimately, you know, as St. Paul, it's really, you know, it's, it's obedience to Christ is the freedom for which Christ has set us free. So mm -hmm. he sets us free from bondage to sin and death so that we might obey him more fully. And that in that obedience is the freedom. And we see this in, those, in the martyrs. I mean, what greater freedom can you have than to give the finger to the authorities, even when they threaten you with death? Uh, right. that's, that's the essence of freedom. And the, the revolutionary period, you know, the New Hampshire's motto is live free or die. Um, and you're not going to die. You're not going to become a martyr for your right to define the meaning of your life. <laughs> uh, nobody. Uh, but you can become a martyr for things that you think are um, God-given rights or unalienable rights. And so the, the founding fathers thought that there was a power or that there were truths greater than, than their immediate weal and woe. And in, this, in, a, in the paganism of our present, all we have is health, wealth, and pleasure. And at the end of the day, we're willing to sacrifice all of our freedoms for health, wealth, and pleasure. Mm. Um, I, I, that's my fear, is that we'll have a kind of soft totalitarianism, a kind of brave new world. Not, it's not a George Orwell in 1984, right. but it's a Aldous Huxley brave new world where we sacrifice our freedoms for the promise that we'll... We'll have lots of pleasure. We'll live longer, and our four hundred one k will be, uh, uh, you know, well stocked. Yeah. Yeah, I think of John eight thirty four, uh, just Jesus saying, "Everyone who practices sin <clears throat> is a slave to sin," and I think that the progressive secularist definition of freedom really is enslavement. If we're free to pursue all of our sinful desires, we're really a slave. And also, I mean, patriotism is a kind of natural form of, of this kind of higher loyalty. Um, and many people don't have faith. Faith is a gift. It's not something that you can kind of generate in yourself. Uh, but patriotism is accessible to all citizens. And a society that encourages patriotism encourages freedom because it gives people something greater than themselves that they are loyal to that allows them to break out of the self-enclosed world of, of the ego to serve something higher. And one of my concerns is that we live in a society where we're, young people are not encouraged to be loyal to something greater than themselves. Do you think that's the case, Rusty, or do you think they're being encouraged to be loyal to the wrong things? I mean, We've joked, you know, I've tried to make you more pessimistic, unsuccessfully thus far. You're, you're, a, you're not a wide-eyed optimist, but you're a sort of semi-wide-eyed optimist on some fronts. Um, you know, in the book, you talk about family, church, and nation as being potential significant frameworks for, for rebuilding. And I just wonder if these things are now so in flux that that's virtually impossible uh, it, it strikes me in the states that we have the rise of a whole heap of micro identities black lives matter being one example gay rights being another where 
increasingly people don't seem to feel united to the person next to them in the neighborhood, in the nation, but they're finding their identity rooted in constructed identities online or something like that. Well, there you go, constructed identities. And, and so they're quite fluid, aren't they? Yeah, and that's my, my concern both, is... They're both given and chosen at the same time. I mean, so that if you're, if you're a black student at Yale, you can, you can cultivate your sense of black identity and solidarity with uh, you know, the kids in the ghettos who are being yeah. shot by police. And then you can go to a um, McKinsey interview uh, you know, and cultivate your identity as an American high achiever. Um, and I think that, so it's not clear that these loyalties run that deep. Okay. Uh, and also, so, you know, there's all these faux ideals, diversity, tolerance, inclusion, empowerment. Uh, these are, these are these kind of ersatz loyalties that young people are encouraged to adopt, but they don't have any particular content. And so they don't really compete with um, the ego, with self-interest. But don't you think that this this contentless fluidity is utterly corrosive of the things that you see as perhaps giving us hope, the idea of nationhood, oh, for example? Oh, absolutely. In that yeah. sense, Yuval Levin's book, A Fractured Republic, was really helpful to me yeah. to articulate the trajectory of fragmentation at work in our society. Everything is becoming more fluid. Uh, and, but it might be the case that, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And it could be that the churches, especially the churches and the family, the nation I th I'm more pessimistic about. I, I, I agree with you. I think it, we, it may not survive a kind of globalist, uh, dream, but the family remains very powerful in people's minds as a source of loyalty, even families that are fragmented and disintegrated by divorce uh, and illegitimacy. And then, and then the church, for all of its flaws, continues to co uh, command a very deep loyalty. And it might be the case that I don't think human beings are made to live in a kind of Heraclitean flux at all times. I think we have a Parmenidean need in our society to, to have uh, anchors of solidity. So it could be the case that the renewal of Christianity really uh, comes about be precisely because so many of the so many of the competitors to Christianity as the anchors for life wind up becoming so uh, so fluid and so fragmented. But certainly, that may well help explain the rise of fundamentalist strands of Islam. I guess yes, I the think attraction so. for young people, particularly right. in Europe. I read the British press every day and. Uh, there was a point about 18 months ago where every day you seem to have a report of some kid from a pretty well-off middle-class immigrant family heading off right. to join ISIS. Uh, yeah, it's an I interesting phenomenon. I mean, I'd like to know who, I mean, Howard Zinn is the great disintegrator of yeah. of a kind of an American piety, his, his history book widely, uh, widely assigned in high schools. I'd like to know whether, you know, the killer in Orlando or the guy who shot policemen in Dallas and in Baton Rouge, I want to know whether they were assigned Howard Zinn in high school. Interesting. Because <laughs> one of the problems is that the postmodern mind deprives people of loves. I mean, critique is a kind of strategy of disenchantment. And again, I think we're, we are made for loyalty. The human person is made for loyalty. And deprive people of healthy loyalties 
and they're going to develop very unhealthy ones, mm. whether it's a kind of crude nationalism, which I think is a danger in some parts of Europe, or whether it's a, a religious fundamentalism. So it seems to me that our duty is to purify the natural loves that the human person adopts and their family and I think nation. We should purify them, but not try to um, disenchant them. And then to, and one of the great sources of purification is a recognition that our, our loyalty to God and faith is our highest love and that all other loves are secondary loves. Yeah. Yeah. How, um, I, I think we're getting, probably close to to wrapping up but i i just wonder how has the um because, because you speak you, you write very well about about solidarity and loyalty in the book how how has the rise of say kind of what you talk about the the, the post-protestant wasp culture which which you say <laughs> that the, the rise of post-protestant wasp culture is is the most significant um uh, social phenomenon um in, in the last 50 years it's my provocation, post-Protestant wasp. <laughs> so well, I say I, that Barack Obama yeah. is a post-Protestant wasp. Yeah. I mean, part of it is, is that I am a product of that culture, wasp mm -hmm. culture. I was uh, born and raised in Baltimore, an Episcopalian. Um, uh, you know, my family's been in the United States. Well, my family's been in North America since uh, the time of the expulsion of the Huguenots from France. I'm descended from French Huguenots that came to Virginia and... 1689. Um, so I, I know of what I speak. And when I, my, the story of my uh, adulthood has been the story of the supposed eclipse of wasp culture, replaced by a diverse meritocracy. But I've come to realize that, yes, the, our elite culture is more diverse, but it's actually become much more homogeneous. And the role of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and these other elite institutions has become far more powerful than it was um, it was when I was a child. And these are, these are WASP institutions that have remade themselves so they're no longer tied to a particular ethnic group, but they do perpetuate a highly moralistic, smug, and insular elite culture, which was pretty much the culture I was raised in. It was very moralistic, kind of spiritual in a certain sense, and uh, moralistic, smug, and had absolute confidence in its right to rule. And I see this as part of what we, problem we face in our society. We see this with Sanders and Trump. There's a protest against this insular smug elite, just as there was a protest against that same insular smug elite, which was then narrowly, narrowly ethnically defined uh, in the late 50s and early 60s, as people felt it was a kind of suffocating force in American life. You can read about, um, you can read about this in the literature of that time there's a lot of protest against the suffocating character of the 1950s. I think today, political correctness, this kind of the president, the president, I mean, is there a high, is there a horse high enough for him to get on? I just don't <laughs> think there is. And, and the lack of self-awareness at yeah. his, as he punches down, endlessly punches down to people who don't share his views. Right. That's so wasp, unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just... I, I I didn't like it when I was growing up, to be honest with you, and I still don't like it. Yeah. You know, one of the, the big arguments, though, against a Christian influence in society is that the authority of the Bible would be a threat to democracy. 
And I think that's the argument used a lot. And it's one that you argue against in your book. You know, what happens to democracy if we don't recognize any authority higher than the will of the majority? Tocqueville and other observers of democracy, and especially America, uh, and the founders for that matter, were very worried about the tyranny of the majority. And the founders with the Constitution created a, they created a system to try to limit the will of the majority. But at the end of the day, the majority is only limited. Democracy is only limited by something greater than itself. Um, uh, you know, the divine right of kings, at least the king recognized that he had his right to rule by some higher authority. But we live in an era where people believe that rights are actually created by government. I mean, what I can't imagine a greater threat uh, to freedom than the notion that because that means that the majority can also take them away as well as give right. them. Right. Yeah, that's good. I feel like we just scratched the surface here. Uh, there's so much more we could talk about. And thank you so much, Rusty, for being with us today. And I highly recommend your book to our listeners, Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. Well, great. It was a real pleasure to be with you all. Thanks, thanks very much, so much, Rusty. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to check out our website, mortificationofspin.org. And um, please remember, we're a donor-supported podcast, and we really do appreciate your support. And we'll talk to you next time. Life is funny. Skies are sunny. Bees make honey. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. Today we're giving away Rusty's latest book, Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society, to some lucky listener. Go to mortificationofspin.org to enter the giveaway. And join us again next week for a conversation with Anthony Esselin on childhood growth and cultivating imagination. I've, I've now concluded, I've now concluded that there are only two things wrong with our schools. And you'll notice I didn't say public schools. There are only two things wrong with them. All of the things that the kids don't learn there and all of the things that they do. Other than that, the schools are fine. That's next time. We hope you'll visit and subscribe to the Mortification of Spin blog and enter to win Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. And we'll talk with you next time. Now, Carl, I...
we, we see that you uh, have the bongos out. The bongos. Yes, yeah. I have a set of bongos. And my didgeridoo right behind them, yes. Oh, outstanding. So is that <laughs> late night activity at the Truman household? I sometimes play the didgeridoo just for, it soothes me, you know. It's, mm. uh, Hmm. I haven't played the bongos for a few years, but I do play the buran, the traditional Irish drum occasionally. That's over the other side of the fireplace. Mm -hmm. So So. I'm thinking if we could get some audio and video of you on the didgeridoo, that would be worth posting. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm 